Kids, you're dismissed through fifth grade to go to your classrooms. And any parents that want to walk down with them, you're welcome to do so. Please turn with me, the rest of you, in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, love that, love that song, love that prayer, and love too that we pray that. We pray that the Lord would uh, make his name known. Uh, we pray it expectantly, knowing that, it tells us in Philippians 2, that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we pray that, we pray that the Lord would cause more people to come to salvation, even now, even among our own body. If there are people in here this morning, if some of you do not know Jesus, our prayer is that you will come to know his salvation, even today. And we pray that the Lord will use our efforts here, not only as we know him truly and deeply, but but also to make him known widely in our community and to the ends of the earth. That's what it's all about. We're all here uh, because of Jesus and only because of him. And to that end, uh, just to kind of reiterate on what Rama said earlier, uh, VBS this week was awesome. There's just no other word for it. It was fantastic. Some of you have your VBS shirts on. Uh, hopefully you washed them at least once this week as we were wearing them basically every day. So Christian, I'm pretty sure yours was washed. Um, not so sure about you, Sam, but we'll, anyways. Um, we are, yeah, just uh, raise your hand if you were involved in helping out with VBS at all this week. Security, all right, very good. Yep, so many. Keep your hands up. I went, look around. I mean, what this is amazing. What an incredible. I was just blown away. I was so convicted um, by you guys helping out every single day this week. You know, working long days and then um, showing up and uh, from 6 to 8.30 uh, serving uh, in VBS and serving our community. What a cool thing. Give yourselves a round of applause. Everyone who helped out, round of applause. Very very neat, and just the love of Jesus being shown to kids in our community, and to be able to partner with Generations Church as well was an extra blessing on top of all the other blessings uh, that took place this week. It's just, we, we say it all the time, but we believe it with Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in the community. Like, we're, all, we're not in competition with one another. We're all on the same team. We all have the same goal in mind, is to see disciples of Jesus Christ formed in this community. And so anytime, it's, it's hard for churches to work together, right? It's not always easy. But anytime that we can do that, we want to take advantage of that. And so being able to put on a community VBS uh, with another church uh, that believes in the gospel and that we all have the same goal in mind, what a cool thing that was was as well. So really grateful to uh, the leadership at Generations for being willing to kind of partner with us in that and for all the people that helped out there as well. And then also to just to, to touch again on what Rama said very briefly that uh, as she, she's just doing a great job. She's not here in here anymore. I don't think so I can uh, talk about her. She's doing an awesome job so far in her couple weeks in here as children's director. And she's kind of going through and we're just looking at who all we have serving in children's ministry right now. Every once in a while we put out a call for more people to serve. But the truth is a lot of you are serving in children's ministry even now. Some of you are, are loving it and want to continue. And from others I know you've been serving a long time and maybe you're ready to step out for a season and uh, we want to make that possible for you to do that and to do that we need new people uh, to step in and so if you are uh, part of our church and you're just wondering where should I start serving this is just an awesome place to start and I have to say that uh, so right when Emily and I got married we were going to College Park Church down in Indy and uh, she uh, I, I just got to say it like it is she dragged me into the four-year-old Sunday school room to uh, help serve there and I had I wanted no part of that I felt I just felt awesome awkward around kids like what do you say to a four-year-old I don't know you know what that feeling I'm getting better now that I have a four-year-old I don't feel that way anymore but it started out and it's just like oh man I don't want to do this but the more
more and more we did it, it was just really a joy, and I grew a lot in that. So maybe you're even the kind of person who's like, I don't know if I'm good with working with kids. Uh, say just try it out and see what the Lord does. But anyway, send Rama an email. Her email's up there, or you can sign up at the Ministry Connections desk after the service if you just want to learn more about what it means to serve in Rock Prairie Kids. And that's all I'll say about that. And then one more thing before we jump into uh, God's Word in Judges chapter 9 this morning. I want to say happy 4th of July. It's not often that we get to actually be together in church on the 4th of July. It's a unique thing. And so uh, just today, days like today are a reminder what a blessing it is to live in the United States, live in the country that we live in. As a lookout on your faces, I see several of you who have served our country in the armed forces. And we're so grateful for the sacrifices that you've made and continue to make for uh, the freedoms that we get to enjoy in this country. It's such a blessing uh, to worship God freely in the United States. And yet also, I think it's good for us to remember on days like today that just like we saw as we studied First Peter, we are, uh, as much as it's a blessing to live in America, we're not called to see ourselves as Americans first. We're called to see ourselves as citizens of the heavenly kingdom first and foremost. And no matter what country we live in, no matter what freedoms we enjoy or don't enjoy, depending on where we live as, as people who belong to Jesus, we are going to be strangers and aliens in that land in some way or another. And so uh, I just want to say as you're putting those burgers on the grill today or hot dogs or steaks or whatever you're doing, make sure you thank the Lord certainly for the blessing that it is to live in the country we live in. And then also just to ask him to kind of drive that truth even d further down into your heart that we're not called to just make our kingdom here in America. We're called to live for his kingdom, which is eternal and will last forever. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, speaking of remembering that uh, this world is not our home, our story this morning is going to give us a reminder of just how fallen the world is and how much this world needs Jesus. A story that gets, starts bad and doesn't get any better. And so we're going to dive into that, but uh, ultimately that's going to point us to the cross. So please bow your heads and pray with me, and then we will jump right in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are, just, you are good, God. You are good. You are holy, holy, holy. You are high and lifted up. You're worthy of our praise, honor, and glory. Lord, we long for that day when all the earth will shout your praise. And our hearts will cry and our bones will sing, Great are you, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would help our church as we endeavor to make Christ known from our neighbors to the nations, to the ends of the earth. That's why we are called to be here. You've given us a task. What a privilege it is to work with you. Uh, I thank you for this body. I thank you for uh, just the so, so many people who just make such sacrifices to serve your body. That's what it's all about. We thank you for that, Lord, and we just pray that, pray for our church, pray for Generations Church, Lord. Thank you for the chance that we had to partner with them, and we just pray for the churches in this community, Lord, that your name would be proclaimed and shouted loudly all over in this community, Lord, Lord, that you would bring people to salvation who don't know you. Lord, I pray that as we look to your word in Judges chapter 9 now, that you would help us see what you want us to see, and that we'd be more like Jesus. Guard my mouth as I speak. May you be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. 
Well, I've talked some before about uh, the fact after I graduated college, I went to Taylor University, and my wife and I went there, and uh, I was an admissions counselor after I graduated. Uh, main reason was that uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time was still a, a senior, and I didn't want to be far away from her, so I was that guy who stuck around a little bit while his uh, girlfriend finished up, and then that girlfriend turned into my fiance, and now she is my beautiful wife. And um, but So I was an admissions counselor, and uh, part of my uh, role in admissions counselor was traveling. We traveled a lot, and uh, so my territory was Ohio, Pennsylvania, and the whole East Coast. So every fall was college fair season, and we'd have this like circuit that would go on, and we just I'd basically just hit the road for weeks at a time, and uh, with a lot, a lot, a lot of traveling. And so anyways, there's one time that I remember that I was getting ready to go on one of these epic road trips, like just driving out to Maryland and then down kind of thing. And um, so I, I had, at the time, the Audible free audiobook credit, and I thought, well, I might as well use this now because I'm going to have all this time in the car. Might as well not waste the time that I have in the car. Maybe I'll listen to a book. And so I reached out to one of my friends whose nickname was Words. So every, uh, every person who lived on our floor at Taylor had a nickname. And uh, my nickname was Hobbs. If you want to know that story, I'll tell you later if you want to know. But um, his nickname was Words and it's because he was an English major. And so he, uh, I thought, well, who should I reach out to? I should reach out to Words. He's the most well-read person I know. So I called him up. And I said, hey, I'm going on this trip and I have... I can read, get any book to read, listen to on an audiobook. Of all the books, what would you recommend? Like this, I only have one free credit, and I was not making very much money at all at the time, and so I wasn't going to buy a book. I was going to use this, so this is my shot. And he said, I know what you should read. You should read, listen to this book called The Road. Has anyone ever heard of this book, The Road? So I took his recommendation. I'd never heard of it either. And uh, I took his recommendation and downloaded it and listened to it. And let me tell you, it was depressing. It was bleak. It's like this post-apocalyptic novel that starts, uh, they never tell you what happened, but some catastrophic event has happened that's wiped out most of the life on this planet, and the story just follows this father and son who just spend this time like walking along the road, and all these terrible and sad things happen to them, and the whole time I'm listening, I'm just like waiting for the happy ending, like waiting for something, like some explanation of the events that took place, waiting for like things to get better in the world, and it, it just ended, and that was it, and it never got any better, and so I'm just read, listen to the whole thing, and I'm depressed at the end, so I call up words, and I'm like, of all the books, why did you recommend that one? And he said, oh, sorry, man, I've actually never read it before. I just heard it recommended to me from someone that was good. You didn't even read it? I told you any book, and you, didn't e you couldn't even read it before? So uh, anyways, all that to say is that there is, like, the more I reflected on it, like, it is kind of a, it's a modern classic, and there's some, like, weird value in like reflecting on those things, like putting yourself in that place. It doesn't make you feel good. It doesn't make you feel happy, but there's value in it. And I say all that to say that our story this morning, the first time I read through it as I was getting ready to preach, so every, every week I do the same thing. I print out the passage that I'm going to read or preach on for that week, and then I clear everything off my desk, get rid of my computer, all electronics, and I just take a pen, and I just read through and mark it all up for the fir my first time reading through. And the first time I read through it, my thoughts were back to the book The Road, because the passage is just super depressing, and there's, there's no good guys, there's nothing good that happens, it starts bad, it 
the whole thing is bad, and then it ends bad, and that's it. And my thoughts went to wondering why in the world that passage is in Scripture. I've never met anyone who told me that their favorite Bible story was the story of Abimelech in Judges chapter 9. It's not people's favorite story usually. We love the stories of triumph, don't we? The David and Goliath, the Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. Like We love the stories where it's clear who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, and good guys winning in the end. We love those stories. But our story this morning is not that. And even though it's not the happiest of stories for us to read on the 4th of July, there's value in it. And the point is that there's some critical messages in it for us that we can't afford to miss. And so we're going to see maybe some disturbing things this morning. But what we really need to see above all that we read is that we're going to see two sober warnings for us in Judges chapter 9. We're going to see first a warning about choosing bad leaders. And then the second warning we're going to see is about the coming judgment of God. So that's where we're going. Before we all go out to our uh, happy cookouts uh, after church here, we're going to be seeing two sober warnings this morning about choosing bad leaders and the coming judgment of God. And I don't want us to miss what God has for us here. Just by way of reminder, last week we finished up a two-week series about Gideon. And our story this morning is about Gideon's son through his concubine, Abimelech. So you remember Gideon uh, was the one who delivered Israel. And then they came to him after and said, hey, we want you to be our king. And he said, nope, I'm not going to be your king because the Lord should be your king, which sounded good. But then he did everything that a king would do. He took on a bunch of wives. He had some concubines. And so he had this son, Abimelech, through his concubine. And he named that son, my dad is king. And when you name your son, my dad is king, it pretty much shows that you think that you're the king. And so our story this morning is now about Mr. My Dad is King, Abimelech. After Gideon died, things continued to go poorly for Israel. End of chapter 8 tells us that all of Israel started worshiping false gods, and they didn't remember the true God. And that leads us to our story this morning. And there's one more detail that we need to keep in mind before we jump in, is that, and that's the setting of the story. The setting is very important. Our story takes place in the town of Shechem. Shechem is a city in Israel where God gave his promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to make him a great nation. And this is also where Joshua and the Israelites worshipped God after crossing the Jordan River. So this is a place where major events had taken place in the, life, in the spiritual life of Israel. This is a sacred town. It is extremely important. And the things that go down in Shechem are horrifying. And it's compounded by the fact that it takes place in Shechem of all places. One commentator like that I read this week likened it to like if America just goes so far south that we reinstitute slavery and then they announce that slavery is going to be reinstituted in Gettysburg. Like that's kind of what's happening here with the fact that the all these things are taking place in Shechem. It's unthinkable that this was happening. So now look with me at verse 1. We're going to start to see what's going on in this story. Verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, who's Gideon, so I'm just going to call him Gideon whenever we get there to avoid confusion, same person, two names. Abimelech, the son of Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, 
This is Abimelech going to his relatives. He says this, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Gideon rule over you, or that run one rule over you? Remember that I am your bone and your flesh. He's got this plan. Gideon has died. There's nobody ruling over Israel anymore. And Abimelech decides he thinks he's just the right man for the job. Abimelech went on a great search for the best leader in Israel, and he found him staring right at him in the mirror. Abimelech says, that's the guy. I think I'm the one. And so this is his plan as he goes to uh, his family who lives in Shechem. He says, would you rather have all of Gideon's 70 sons rule over you? Or would you have one guy rule over you? And remember, I'm your family. And this family says, actually, we think we'd rather just have Abimelech so we don't have to worry about those 70 guys. And so what they do is they go to everyone else in Shechem, to all the leaders, all the influential people, and they kind of whisper this plan into their ears. Hey, do you really want all 70 of those guys to be leading you? You don't? Well, guess what? I've got just the guy for you, and he's a relative of ours, and he's, his name is Abimelech. And so they decide, yep, that's the guy that we want. We want Abimelech to be ruling over us. Verse 4, they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bereith. Okay, so they are, in order to bring him into power, they, he needs some resources, some finances. And so they like rob this temple of this false god that's in Shechem, which shouldn't be there. But they take this money out of that house of baal Bereith, And it says, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. I don't know how many of you in your life are in a position of, uh, in your employment to hire people, but just kind of as a good rule of thumb, if you're hiring someone, make sure they're not worthless and reckless fellows. That's probably not the kind of people that you want in your organization. Okay, so this is, Scripture does not speak well of Abimelech or the men that he is, called, is hired to follow him. He goes, he takes his money, he hires just a bunch of hooligans. Verse 5. And he went to his father's house, house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, 70 men on one stone. Okay, so he's going to do whatever it takes to be king. Not only is he going to put, set himself up in terms of politically, in terms of what the people want, but he needs to do it militarily as well. And so he goes and he kills all of his brothers with these goons that he's hired. All except for one. End of verse 5. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, was left, for he hid himself. So the youngest son hides and gets away. All of his brothers have died. Verse 6. All the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Okay. So they killed all his brothers, and now Abimelech is king. Now there's one very important thing to take note of here is that this is a, a, a major departure from the cycle that we've seen in Judges up until this point. So remember every story we've seen in Judges has had the same rebel, repent, repeat cycle. The people of Israel would rebel against God, worship false gods. God would bring in an outside army and, and torment them and oppress them and so then the people would repent of their sin and cry out to God and God, this is key, would raise up a deliverer for them. So every, every judge that we've seen has been raised up by 
God to deliver them, and then they do, they're successful in delivering them, and then the land has peace, and then they go back into this cycle. This is not that at all. The danger is not coming from outside of Israel. The danger is actually inside of Israel with Abimelech not being raised up by God to be the leader, but doing whatever he could in his own power to raise himself up. So in defiance and disobedience, Abimelech has grabbed this power for himself that is only God's to give. And what we have here is a character study in bad leadership is what it is. And thus we have the first of our two sober warnings for this morning. The first warning we need to see from this passage is beware of choosing bad leaders. Beware of choosing bad leaders. We're going to see a couple character traits of bad leaders. The first is that they're obsessed with power. That's what we've just seen. He was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that he was the guy in charge, even if that meant murdering 70 of his brothers or 69. He tried to murder them all. He was doing whatever he could to get in power, and that's true of bad leaders. That is not just a one-off. That is true throughout history. That is true today. Bad leaders will do whatever they can to get power for themselves. Secondly, what we're going to see in the rest of the passage is that bad leaders have no character. Bad leaders are not men of character. So verse 5, like we said, shows us that Jotham, the youngest brother, got Away. And so verses 7 through 15 are actually a parable that Jotham is telling. So just kind of picture the scene in your mind. I can't quite figure out exactly how it worked, but there's this coronation ceremony for Abimelech, and then Jotham has escaped, and now he's like on this mountain. And so probably after the coronation ceremony, he starts yelling, and everyone looks up, and he's got a story to tell them. And the parable that he tells them is a story about a bunch of trees in the forest wanting to choose a king. And so the trees in the forest are looking for a king, and they approach three different kinds of trees, all very noble and important trees. They approach the olive tree, they approach the fig tree, and they approach the vine. All plants and, and things in the garden and in the, in the forest that uh, are of great value to the community and would have been great options for leaders. And they all turn them down. And so what do the trees do? They approach a bramble bush. A bramble bush. What's a bramble bush? It's nothing. It's like just this dry, tiny, thorny bush. It provided no shade for everyone, anyone. It, it made no fruit. There was, um, it, it would easily combust and catch on fire and cause great problems. And the trees went to this bramble bush. And, and you see in verse 14, they say to, to the bramble bush, the worthless, good-for-nothing bush, you come and reign over us. Now, who's this an indictment of? Well, it's an indictment of the bramble bush, right? The bramble bush is not worth anything. The bramble bush, like we said, has, it's, easy, it's a great analogy because you can tell, see like the quick temper, the just easily combustible nature of it, that, that nothing good comes from it, nothing helpful, nothing valuable, nothing life-giving. It's just dead, basically. And so it's certainly an indictment of Abimelech as the bramble bush, but even more so, don't you think it's an indictment of the trees who asked the bramble bush to reign over them. 
That's what he's doing. He's showing the stupidity of the trees and asking this worthless bush to be their king. And verse 20, if you look at verse 20, that's kind of the key moment in our passage. What he's saying, he's prophesying what's going to come. He says, you're going to be, to the trees, you're going to be burned by him and he's going to be burned by you. That's what he's saying. That's the prophecy he makes. It's going to go bad for everyone. It's going to go bad for the bramble bush who's not worthy of being king, and it's going to go bad for the trees who made the bramble bush their king. The point of all this is to show that Abimelech was not the kind of guy that you wanted to be ruling over you. He was a man of no character. He was a man of no integrity. And this was a judgment on the people that they chose him to be their king. What we see is that when it comes to leaders, character counts. Bad leaders do not have any character. And so the application for us is simply that character matters. Character matters. Integrity matters. Honesty matters. As I read in the book uh, Spiritual Leadership by uh, Blackaby, he said that there was a study done a while back of employees of Fortune 500 companies and asking what qualities they desired most in a CEO. So either their CEO showed this or they didn't, but what were the most important things to the leader of these gigantic organizations? What did the employees want to see? And it was surprising what the results were. It wasn't... Uh, good leadership skills, it wasn't the ability to cast vision, it wasn't having a big personality, it wasn't any of these things. The number one most important quality by far was honesty and integrity. I mean, your words match your actions. You say something and you do it. The person that you are in private is the same person that you are in public. Integrity matters, and it matters for all of us. We're talking about leadership, but it matters for all of us, right? Regardless of the position that the Lord has placed you in in your life. It matters when you're the boss, when you're running the business. It matters when you're the lowest man on the totem pole. It matters when you're a teacher, when you're a student, when you're a customer, an employee, right? When you're a police officer, when you're a citizen, when you're a parent, when you're a child, like integrity matters. The Lord has placed all of you in his divine providence exactly where you are in your life. And you don't have to wait to get to a certain point for integrity to matter. Integrity matters right now. Let your words match your actions. And be a person of character and integrity. It's so important for all of us. And what we see in this passage is that it's especially important when you're choosing leaders. When you're choosing leaders and on the 4th of July today, it's easy for natural for our thoughts to turn to our own country, right? And choosing our own local and natural, national leaders. And let's just be honest, church. As Christians in America with the way things are right now in a two-party system, we're often stuck between a rock and a hard place with the candidates that are nominated by the respective parties. Are we not? It's not always easy or clear which candidate has any more character than another. And I'm not pretending to be an expert in these things. I tend to stay away from politics as much as I can. I think it's good for my own sanity. And let me humbly suggest pastorally that maybe it's good for some of your sanity to kind of step back from politics and some of these things. But I just want to say, like as a Christian... It should not be controversial to say that character matters in selecting our political leaders if they have a D next to their name or an R next to their name. 
Character is important. It counts. Sometimes you don't have any choice of anyone with character. What do you do? Well, we trust the Lord. He's in control. Oh, God, that person would have ended our country. Oh, really? Because they're in control of that? God's in control, so we trust him. We need to remember and be reminded that it is not controversial to say that character is all the utmost importance when it comes to our political leaders. And when a country forgets that principle, it never ends well. It just doesn't. So that's just wisdom for us as Christians in America. But you know what? As important as that is, that's not even my primary concern in applying this passage. Because again, like we said before, America is not Israel. Okay, We don't apply these things one-to-one what my concern is is the church are we having men of character leading the church and too often we see churches prioritize gifting and personality and teaching ability or ability to attract a crowd or build a big budget or whatever it is over character when it comes to choosing leaders and what's amazing and what's so darn convicting to me is that everywhere in scripture when it talks about who is to be involved in leadership in the church it doesn't talk about gifting at all not one ounce it only talks about character one of the key passages about qualifications for leaders in the church is first timothy 3 2 through 7 let me read that for you and you'll see it on your screen it says therefore an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife Sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. It's all about character. It's all about who you are. I think, it, I can't remember where I read this. I think it was in that same book, Spiritual Leadership, but somebody where a pastor was asking the question, what's the most important thing for my congregation? And the answer that he gave was my personal holiness. His, my personal holiness, that's true for me, that's true for our pastors and leaders of the church. It's our personal holiness is the number one most important thing that we can give to the church above anything else. And that's true biblically. We see it time and time again. And I'm challenged by this because these things are hard to live up to and no one does so perfectly. But man, we see the aftermath of it, don't we? We, see, we hear stories of churches big and small where um, the things just don't end well. And so we need to remember, make sure, whether it's raising up deacons or elders or people to lead, that we are looking for character more than anything else. You might say, well, I'm not in leadership. That doesn't really apply to you. Yes, it does. A, everyone is called to live to this standard. And there's not, these aren't things that aren't true of everyone else. There's not like an extra holiness we're all called to live to these standards, but B, as the church, we're called to raise up leaders from among our own. And these are the things that we care about because these are the things that God's word tells us to care about. Character matters. Amen? Amen? Amen. So that's our first warning here. And the second warning that we see, like I said, it doesn't really get any happier, but here we go. The second warning that we see is beware of choosing, oh, sorry, is beware of the judgment of God. 
Beware of the judgment of God. Verse 20, like I said, is kind of the the apex of the story. Jotham is foreshadowing what's going to come. He says, if y'all install Abimelech and it looks like you just did, then you're going to get burned and he's going to get burned. And so the rest of the story is telling exactly how that happened. And thankfully we have a little bit, like just a hint of comic relief here in verse 26. It's kind of funny and it's not. But look with me at verse 26 about what happens next. We have a new person introduced into the story. Verse 26. Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. So this is a guy. He moves into Shechem, and he's kind of getting a good reputation among the leaders. Verse 27. They went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them. They made a bunch of wine, and they held a festival. And they went to their house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. Okay, so this, what's happening here? They're having a big party with a whole, the wine is flowing, and they are just saying all sorts of terrible things about Abimelech, how much they hate him, how much they want him out of there. And uh, there's one person in particular, Gail, who starts to get some, shall we say, liquid courage in him, and he starts running his mouth. Look at verse 28. Gail, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel of of Gideon, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. So he's there, he's got his, his glass of wine, he's probably slurring his words a little bit. He's like, if I was in charge, I'd kick Abimelech right to the curb if everything was up to me. And uh, this speech in America is a protected speech, but uh, as you have it in ancient Israel, it very much is not protected speech. And so these are dangerous things to be saying in public about the guy who's in charge. And uh, somebody that Gail thought was on his side turned out to be kind of like a double agent here. And so Zebul, he overhears all of this, and he gives the message back to Abimelech saying, and there's this guy, Gail, running his mouth about you. He thinks that he should be in charge. What are you going to do about it? And so Abimelech and Zebul make a plan that, you know what? We're actually not going to tolerate that kind of behavior in Shechem. We are going to go do something about it. And so they make a plan together. Where am I? Verse 34. Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul, remember he's like this double agent, said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. So Gael's like, "Um, Is that a bunch of people coming down the mountain?" Are we in trouble? And uh, they're kind of both, you can imagine them both like squinting far away. And Zebul's like, no, that's just a shadow. I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not, that's not a bunch of people. And then verse 37, Gail spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land. And one company's coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. There, I see them. And look, they're coming from that tree over there. Like there's people there and they're coming to attack us. And I love this. Zebul, I imagine he was waiting for this moment. He was ready, and I bet he stayed up all night the night before thinking of, like, the perfect thing to say, and he nailed it. Listen to what he says. He said, then Zebul said to him, where is your mouth now? I love that. 
I'm probably, the two Rock Prairie softball teams are playing each other next week. If I, uh, let's say I uh, strike out Andy London, I'm probably going to say, where is your mouth now, Andy London? Except actually what's going to happen is he's going to hit a home run off me, and then he's going to tell me, where is your mouth now? But either way, I love that comeback. Where is your mouth now? You were just all running, spouting a bunch of tough guy stuff that you were going to be in charge. Guess what? Now you're going to have to back it up. Where is your mouth now? You who said, who's Abimelech that we should serve him? And so Zebul says, go ahead and fight. And they do. And it does not turn out well for Gale and whatever kind of army he's been able to cobble together. And they just get completely obliterated. This is part of the judgment starting to happen now. So Gale, with all the guys who were running their mouths saying, we don't want Abimelech to be king. Well, they failed. And Abimelech succeeded. He, he, he prevailed over them. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting because presumably there were a lot of people in Shechem who uh, weren't at that party, who had nothing to do with any of this, and uh, they didn't really maybe care who was the king over them. They maybe heard rumblings of these people who were going to try to uh, have this uprising against Abimelech, but they weren't a part of it at all. And so once Abimelech gets rid of Gale and his army, all the people in Shechem just assume life is going to go back to normal because the text tells us the next day they were just out working in the fields again like they would normally do, but that was, but getting revenge on Gale was not enough for Abimelech. So the next day he goes and he lays waste to the entire city of Shechem and destroys everybody. And there's this tower, which was their stronghold, and a thousand men and women in it. And he just lays it to waste. And every single person is dead. And this is, again, the continuing of the judgment of the people because they were the ones who called Abimelech to be their leader in the first place, and now they're suffering the consequences. And so the first half of Jotham's prophecy has been fulfilled. All the trees were burned. They were destroyed. They were pain, suffering the consequences for calling this bramble bush to be their leader. But it doesn't end there because now Abimelech is getting a little bit drunk with power and he thinks himself unstoppable. And so the next day he goes to a neighboring town called Thebes and he decides it was so successful against Shechem, we're going to go take over this city of Thebes. And so he uses the same tactic that he used to destroy the tower of Shechem. They do the exact same thing to destroy the tower of Thebes, except this time he's not so successful. So picture Abimelech uh, is on a roll. He, everything he tries to do, he is successful in. And they go to the town of Thebes and look at how quickly it ends. Verse 53, look there. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. It's out of nowhere. Just bam. And we've talked in the past uh, with Jail about, uh, uh, what chapter was that? I forget, maybe chapter 5, about the, the lady who did the tent peg in, uh, in the skull, about uh, how uh, uh, dishonorable it was for a man of war, a man of valor, to be killed by a woman in that time. And so you can imagine how that would have felt for Abimelech. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this lady just chucks this stone and just lands like just the perfect shot landed right on his head, and he almost died. He didn't die, but we see his vanity even in his last breath by telling his armor bearer to shove a sword through him so that nobody could say he got killed by a woman. But guess what? We all know what really happened. And that's our whole story. <laughs> that's it. Abimelech kills 69 of his brothers to be the king. The one surviving brother says, this is not going to end well for you. 
And then the entire town of Shechem is destroyed, and then Abimelech is destroyed. The end. What in the world? It's a pretty bleak story, like I said. We don't avoid passages of like this in Scripture. We don't apologize for them. We just want to see what God has for us in them because they're in Scripture for a reason. In, the la- in this case, we actually see the purpose of it in the last two verses. So look at verse 56. It says, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech. Let me say that again. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech. We haven't seen God at all in this story until now. Or maybe we were wondering, what was God doing Did God even know what was going on? But we see, like we always see, that God is the one in control. He's sovereignly moving the pieces. So God returned the evil of Abimelech, and God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbabel. God was at work the whole time, and he, in this case, was exercising judgment exercising his judgment. Again, this is not the, maybe the happiest text on the 4th of July, but let's not miss what's happening here. We see a few quick things about God's judgment, and the first thing is that it comes without warning. God's judgment comes without warning. Now, uh, earlier this week on Wednesday, I, I came into the office as I usually do, and I was immediately greeted with the news that we had a whole bunch of water pouring out of the ceiling in the adult classroom, which is a real bummer. Um, thankfully, I'm not in charge of trying to fix those things, or we wouldn't have a church building for very long, but we've got some fantastic trustees who uh, are, handle those things, and so Mark Toll came in, and he identified the problem right away, and the problem was that it's right where our air conditioner is, and the air conditioner wasn't draining properly. It's just what happens is over time because of the water that the calcium builds up and there's different sediments and things that build up in the drain pipe and it slowly, 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 slowly clogs and then eventually no water can come through and so the water leaks out in another place and lands on the drip pan and the drip pan's job is to hold water but it's only supposed to hold a little bit of water and when a whole bunch of water comes it holds it for a little bit and then all of a sudden there's going to be a whoosh and you're going to have a lot of water on your floor. And that's what happened here. And that's what God's judgment is like. God doesn't zap you with a lightning bolt like immediately when you sin. There's sometimes a delay. And think about from Abimelech's perspective. Like put yourself in his shoes. He was rolling. Things were going great. He hatched a plan to become king. Everyone bought it. He killed all of his brothers except for the youngest one, but he's not going to be any trouble, and he was in power. And then he hears about people in Shechem that are trying to usurp his power, and so he destroys them. And then, he, for a good measure, he destroys the whole town of Shechem to teach him a lesson. And then he's just about to destroy the next town, and boom, out of nowhere, the rock comes and lands on his head and ends everything. God's judgment is coming. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it isn't coming. He didn't see it until the blink of an eye. It was all over. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 talks about people who are living in sin and specifically people who are judging others for doing the same kinds of activities that they themselves are doing. And it says this, verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Are you presuming on the kindness of God because you're not experiencing his judgment right now? 
Are you living in sin? And because you're not seeing the consequences for it immediately, thinking that you're somehow getting away with it. It's God's kindness that you don't experience his judgment right away like we all deserve. It's his kindness and his kindness alone. But it says, are you presuming on his kindness, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is not meant to lead us to sinning brazenly and thinking that there's no consequences for it. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to seeing the error of our ways and praising God that his mercy is more. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't store up wrath for yourself. Like that drip pan holding water. Because there will be a day when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Don't love your sin more than you love God is the easiest way I can say that. Don't love your sin more than you love God. Put it to death. It's God's grace and kindness that he withholds judgment for a time. But his kindness isn't meant to lead us to sin. It's meant to lead us to repentance. If you're alive right now, you are living in a unique time where you still have the opportunity. Like if you're hearing these words from me, you still have the opportunity to repent. And that won't always be the case. If you're not yet following Jesus, it is his grace like right now that you are hearing this. It's his kindness. You still have the opportunity to follow him, to repent of your sin and follow Jesus. If that's you, if you've never done that, let me just urge you to make today the day of your salvation. And if you are following Jesus, don't continue in your sin and idolatry just because you think you're getting away with it. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance and his judgment comes without Warning. The second thing we see about God's judgment is that it's just. It's just. It's fair. It's right. It's difficult for us to hear. Ezekiel 33.11 tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't enjoy when the wicked are put to death. Isaiah 28 tells us that judgment is his alien work. It's his strange work. What's closest to God's heart is grace and mercy. And yet that does not mean that he does not exercise judgment. And when he does, it is right and it is fair. He doesn't delight in it. Like we can say God is love. We don't say God is judgment. But God executes judgment. Because it's right. He's just in it. It's never unfair. It's never undeserved. And this is like the first half of the gospel, right? That we all deserve judgment. We've all rightly earned the wrath of God. And there's nothing that we can do about it. Our sins, they are many. Without an outside intervention on our behalf, our destination is hell. And we deserve to spend eternity there. His judgment is just and is right. He doesn't delight in it, but this is part of who he is. And thankfully, that's not the end of the story, because our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And God's judgment fell on Jesus. God didn't blink away and just wave away the punishment for our sin. It fell on Jesus at the cross where the sinless Son of God took the wrath of God and paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. God was right to send that rock to crush Abimelech's head in judgment. 
And he would be right to do the same to each of us right now. And the only reason that he doesn't is because of the blood of his son, Jesus. And this is the beauty of the gospel. We deserve judgment. God is right to send it. And he sent his son to die in our place. Think about Gail drunkenly telling Abimelech that Abimelech shouldn't be on the throne. Gail should be on the throne. That's each of us apart from Christ. Each of us saying, I'm not going to live under your rule, God. I'm going to live under my rule. God, you think you know best? I know best. That's our sin, and we deserve judgment for it. The same judgment that Abimelech, the wicked king, gave Gael is the same judgment that we deserve from a holy God. But the beauty of the gospel is that that's not the end. Without Jesus, your story is a Judges 9 story. Without Jesus, that's the story of your life. Born in sin, live in sin, die in sin, suffer for sin. But with Jesus, it's all different, all 100% different. With Jesus, your story is a story of glory and honor and immortality, like it says in Romans 2. Not because of your works, but because at the cross, Jesus showed us that his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. He stood beneath the debt that we could never afford. Our sins are many, and his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. What else can we say? Praise the Lord. We serve a God who sends judgment, yes, but we also serve a God who is a God of mercy, a God who tells us that you're never too far gone to come to the cross. Maybe you're starting to think about these things for the first time, and the first thought that's popping into your mind is that I'm too far gone. Well, guess what? That's not from God. That's from the enemy. You are never, ever, ever too far gone to come to Jesus. You're hearing this message today because God wants you to hear this message today. And I want to invite you as we sing this next song, we're going to sing His Mercy is More one more time. And if you have work to do with God, with you and God, I want you to just come down, to invite you to come down and kneel right here at the front. Just get things right between you and the Lord. If you've never repented of your sin and followed him, make today the day that you do that to come and kneel and say, God, I'm done trying this on my own. I'm done trying to shove you off the throne, and I want to worship you. I want you to be on the throne in my heart and in my life. I repent of all the things that I've done in the past, and I want to follow you starting today. If you've never done that, then this next song, let me urge you to come and make that today the day of your salvation. If you're following Jesus, but you've just forgotten about his mercy, or maybe you've loved your sin more than you've loved God, maybe it's just a time for you to come down and get that right between you and the Lord. We don't do this all the time. We don't do it very often, but I think today is an appropriate day for you to come and make things right between you and Jesus who says beautifully, your sins are many, but my mercy is more. And praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you that your mercy is more. Lord, we just pray that if you are working in anyone's heart right now, if the Spirit is moving in anyone's heart and life, that they would know that that's from you, God, and that they would come forward and today make today the day of their salvation. Lord, there's nothing magic about coming to the front here 
But it's a symbol, it's a sign, taking that step forward. It's saying, I'm taking this step to follow you, taking a step away from my old self that only brought me death and destruction. I'm taking a step to eternal life because of what Jesus has done on the cross and only for that reason. So, Lord, we just pray, do a mighty work. Thank you for passages like this that give us a somber and sober warning. But that in that show us that in stark contrast to that somber and sober warning is the beautiful and lavish mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.